But very thankful for everybody. Thank you for coming this morning. See lots of visitors today, so thank you for coming. What we do, or what do we say, rather, to a world that is dying and going to hell? What do we say to people who don't know us? What do we do when they don't know that we care about them and we want to speak truth into their life? How do we, how we, how do we approach people who think very different from us? We all know this is that we live in a world filled with lost people who are racing towards hell. As I walked around our block last night, I listened to a little bit and watched a little bit of the family conference in Philadelphia hosted by the Pope that Rick Warren uh, endorsed and was there and was the last speaker. Take note of that. Throw away your purpose-driven life books, please. I was struck by the lostness of the people there and the deception of those hosting the conference. At one point, the Hollywood host made reference to his evil movie, Ted, that he participated in. One of the boys who sang a solo, which was really pretty, apparently then whispered into the host's ear after he finished his solo, I loved your movie, Ted. Uh, Don't watch the movie. I haven't seen the movie. I've heard it's horrible. Uh, Not good. The host then joked from the stage while talking to the audience, Oh, you're too young, I told him. You're too young to watch this movie. And then... While he shared the story to the audience, he looked back at the Pope and said, Father, Holy Father, please forgive me. (laughs) At this point, the Pope smiled at him and nodded his head, and I was dumbfounded. Everything about that was wrong. Everything about it was evil. At this point, I began praying. I'm walking around the block. I know people in my neighborhood think I'm nuts. (laughs) I began to shudder. And it just happened that thunder, thunder and lightning was happening at the same time. I was thinking to myself, oh, God, how long are you going to put up with us? How long are you going to wait before you wipe us all out? felt like crawling under the ground. I thought there's absolutely no reason God doesn't wipe us all out right now. The only thing that keeps God's wrath from being poured out on us is his long-suffering and patient character. I thought to myself, we must be bold and proclaim the gospel to people. For so many people are dying and going to hell, folks. So many people have a wrong understanding of God. And I just pray that as you see, have you seen the news? Have you been grieved with me? Countless billions of people hate God and embraced idolatry. It's crazy. So as we observe the idolatry and sin of our world, how do we speak truth into this world? What do we say? How do we act? What do we say? We see in our message a perfect sample or example of proclaiming the gospel to a dead world. Paul does it, doesn't he? He speaks it perfectly. 
He speaks to a world that was lost and a city that was full of idolatry. And he speaks boldly, clearly, compassionately, gently, respectfully, all of that. It's a masterful sermon. And I can't wait to go over it with you. It's going to be two weeks probably, maybe even three. It's a great passage. I want you to understand it. I want you to think on it. I want you to meditate on it. And then I want you to apply it. I want you to speak like he does and share these great truths with the lost world that we live in. Our passage breaks down into four main sections. The setting for the sermon is found in the beginning in chapter 17, verse 22a. And then the introduction to the sermon is 22b to 23. And the body of the sermon in verses 24 to 31. And then the response to the sermon is in 32 to 34. So let's start with the setting for the sermon. We saw a little bit of it last week too, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig in on that. So look at verse 22a. So Paul stood in the midst of the Aragopagus and said, Paul had met these Greek philosophers most likely in the marketplace. If you look in verse 17, you see that. There were two main groups of philosophers in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans in Athens were like today's narcissistic hedonists of today. A narcissist is a person who has an excessive interest in themselves. And a hedonist is a pleasure seeker. So a narcissistic hedonist is an excessively selfish pleasure seeker. And that's exactly what the Epicureans were. They reveled in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The Epicureans downplayed any thought of God. They did this so they could promote doing whatever was right in their own eyes. They were deists in practice. That is, they said that the gods started things but then had no interest with talking to their creation or working with their creation or involvement with the creation. They denied any accountability to their gods. They made it all about them. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed everything was part of a divine logos, but it wasn't God. It wasn't the word, Jesus. It was more of of a spiritual force in everything, somewhat like a mother nature concept. And They believed everything was evolving and mankind would become extinct at some point. They believed everything was slowly getting better and somewhat like the Buddhists of today also. Thus, they emphasized discipline in promoting natural, nature's evolution to a better creation. Remember, they accused Paul of being an idle babbler, a person who picked and chose various thoughts and formed their own religion. However, it's very interesting. There was a desire from the group to hear Paul. Their motives were less than righteous. They were information collectors. We saw that last week, right? They were really what they accused Paul of. They wanted to hear him to get a little bit of information to kind of add to their knowledge tank, but they were always listening but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. They always wanted to hear stuff, but they never were coming to the knowledge of the truth. So we saw last week that Paul was fully aware of the depravity that was around him in Athens. He sees their idolatry. He's provoked to both righteous anger and profound sadness and compassion over their lostness. 
Paul's emotions were fully engaged with a biblically inspired emotion. He both was angry and sad. Very much somewhat like what I went through last night walking around the block. Very similar. So now Paul is providentially given an opportunity to speak the truth to the group of leaders in the city. A time to speak his heart to them. I don't know about you, but this is perfect, isn't it? How many of you would love that when you're provoked to righteous anger or sadness over the world and they come up to you and say, will you please speak to me? That would be great, wouldn't it? It's like, yeah, I'm glad you asked. That's exactly where Paul is right now. He gets to now talk to them. He gets to respond to the world. In God's providence, he sets it up that though their motives are bad, he gets an opportunity. How would you respond if you were given this kind of opportunity? As I was preparing, I I was reminded that we are all given these opportunities regularly. We see sin and often from family members or co-workers. And we are later given an opportunity to speak truth into that person's life. How we do this and what we say is extremely important, ladies and gentlemen. I can't stress this enough to you. How we talk to people who have aroused our hearts to anger and pity can be, have profound effects on how they respond. And I want you to get this. This is so important. We must not let our emotions get out of control. And we must speak to them with grace and truth, as we will see. We are able uh, <coughs> to be provoked to anger or stimulated by sadness to see them. <coughs> but we must... Be ready and prepared to speak the truth. Now, sometimes people are just going to be angry and respond with anger. If a man or a woman of God is humbly sitting under the lordship of God, they will speak in a way, however, that makes peace, not war. Now, I want you to listen to me closely. As we go through this passage, we see that Paul doesn't get stoned after this one. It seems as though they respond pretty good. As a whole, they don't agree with him, and most of them don't. Some do, but very few do. But they don't kill him. Why is that? Well, I think he suffered most of his wrath from the Jews that he was proclaiming the truth to and saying, this is your Messiah. They hated that, and they would then rile up the crowds. We've seen this in Acts, right? But when he's speaking to a pagan land, a land and, and a city that said, you've got to allow everybody to speak no matter what. They needed to be consistent. So they were going to let him speak. And so when Paul speaks, he speaks as Proverbs 16 states, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. There's a great principle here. It's not a promise. Sometimes people are going to get angry with us. But if we speak the way that God Spirit works in us and teaches us to speak with gentleness and kindness and respect, Guess what? People aren't always going to hate us. But as a normal rule of life, as we see here, as a normal rule of life, if we proclaim the truth under the guidance of the Spirit, we will often be heard, even if our message is not embraced. Listen, if every time you talk to a family member or any family member, they get angry at you, you're probably doing something wrong. Do you understand? If you tick everybody off every time you talk about Jesus, you're probably doing something wrong. 
Do you hear me? I'm not saying that you can't occasionally get somebody upset. They can't get mad at you. But as a general principle of the Bible and how we live, we should be able to speak truth with grace and gentleness in a way that they don't go, hey, kill him. I hate you. And we see this from Paul. This is what we see today in Paul's sermon. No, he's not widely accepted, I agree. But at the same time, he doesn't provoke them to wrath as he speaks. He's a perfect example of Proverbs 16.21. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Did you hear that? And sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Paul speaks with judici- he speaks judicially with wisdom and discernment. We all need to pursue this kind of speech all the time. Paul shows that the Spirit's in control of him. He is provoked to anger and sadness, but he responds with honor and truth, as we'll see. So let's look at his introduction to his sermon in verses 22 and 23. In 22 and 23, it states, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The introduction is Paul's way of getting the audience's attention. He was polite but direct. This is a very hard balance to strike. When we share the gospel with people, we often fall one way or the other. We're either too polite or too direct. But Paul strikes an amazing balance here where he's direct but polite at the very same time. The reason we fall one side or the other is, one, we are so aware of our audience that we think we need to be overly kind and give platitudes in order to win the ear of the audience. So it, we look at them and we're, oh, oh, I'm afraid of them, so I've got to be overly polite. Okay, that would be wrong. Okay, or we are too unaware of our audience. We don't really put ourselves in their shoes, and therefore we insult our audience. We speak with no real respect for those who we are speaking to. Which way do you fall? Everybody in the room probably falls one way or the other. You're either too harsh or too polite. And there's a balance in there that we all need to find. And that's the balance that we see with the Apostle Paul here. And it's a masterful sermon. The balance of this speaking with respect and truth, this is exactly what Paul accomplishes. His presentation is amazing. He speaks to weak people knowing he is also a weak person. He speaks to sinners knowing that he was once a dead sinner. Notice Paul introduces his introduction includes both respect and truth. Let's examine the elements of both in his introduction. First, Paul speaks and says respectfully and addresses his audience, men of Athens. Again, who's he talking to? He's talking to idolaters. These were enemies of God. They were men filled with admiration for false gods and false philosophies. They had embraced the doctrines of demons. But Paul respectfully calls them men of Athens, unlike those, some of those preachers on campus at USF that call people names, horrible names, just to 
arouse the audience or something to get them into a fight? Paul shows respect, men of Athens. Next we see Paul respectfully points out what he knows about them. He seeks to affirm an underlying correct desire. Now, listen closely to this section of the sermon. If you don't listen, you're going to misquote me or misunderstand me. So listen real closely. He affirms an underlying correct desire in these people. He does it in a way that he doesn't affirm their sin, but he shows respect to the God-given image bearers that they are. He shows respect for who they are, and he speaks in a way that affirms good desires, but at the same time rebukes wrong practices. Okay? Paul states, I observe that you are a very or you are very religious in all respects. Now I confess I grapple with this little phrase probably the most out of the whole passage. Now listen to it. I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Is Paul affirming their religious pursuits? Or is Paul giving them a disguised backhand? Which one is it? The commentators are all over the place on this little phrase that he starts with. They go from saying Paul is affirming them in order to get their attention. In other words, he lies and affirms them to the place where he says something just to get them to listen to him. No, that's wrong. We don't lie to people. Okay. Then they go to the other side and say he was mocking them, but in a disguised way. No, I don't know if he'd be mocking them. That wouldn't be very respectful, would it? So I personally kind of land in a whole different camp. I believe Paul is affirming their wise desires without affirming the idolatry itself. He's affirming their wise desire without affirming their idolatry. Look, everyone is born with a God-given conscience. Everybody knows this, right? Their conscience wants to love and be loved. It wants to worship. It wants to pursue something bigger than themselves. We were created, humanity was created to be worshipers. Do you understand? We were created to rejoice and be satisfied. We were created created to be disciplined in our pursuit of our worship even. We were created to be that way. Now sin and depravity of the soul has distorted this image of God. But I believe Paul, in effect, here is saying, I see your diligent and even discipline in your pursuit of worship. The problem was the object of their worship was wrong, right? They sought to worship the things that they made up in their minds instead of the one true God. Their ignorance made them unable to pursue the one true God. So they were great at pursuing but they weren't great at pursuing the right object. So what does he do here? What? It's amazing. And I want you all to take note of this. This is so important. Please get this. I think I'm on to something in how I deal with my family members or we deal with people in the world that disagree with us and aren't on line with the gospel. We must be able to see that their pursuits, the pursuit itself is part of the image-bearing principle. That God has given people. 
so that we can look at them and say, oh, I see the image of God in you. But at the same time, we can then graciously confront them with what they pursue, the objects of their pursuit. Very, very, very important. Paul does this in a masterful way. He graciously says to them, I see your religious pursuit. You are disciplined people. I see the image of God in you, for lack of a better term. And he's even going to say it when he says you are offspring of God. So he starts here with an affirmation. You guys are very diligent in your pursuit of worship. In Paul's mind, he just wanted to expose them to the one true God, but he also understood who they were and what they needed. And he also knew that, hey, I'm not just going to poke you with a red-hot poker in your eye. I'm going to go to the heart, and I want you to hear me. So I'm going to tell you who you are. We see Paul mentioned method is affirmed with grace, the right or wise desires. Wanting to know and serve God is not bad. The problem is we want or desire to serve the wrong God apart from the true gospel, right? Next, we see Paul does not avoid speaking the truth at the same time being respectful. Notice he says, For while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. This is so interesting. How masterful Paul is in his defense. I mean, this was probably not the most obvious altar in the city. This was to the protect your blind side idol or cover your bases idol. In other words, the people were so filled with a desire to please their gods and fear being hurt by them that they covered their backsides with an altar to the unknown god. Now, was this a direct allusion to the one true God? I don't think so. I think, again, Paul is affirming their religious desires, their dedication to worship, more than who they were worshiping. They were just covering their backside. And he's saying, look, I see your pursuit. And then he's going to take, I see your pursuit, and turn it masterfully into, let me tell you who the unknown God is. It's it's amazing. The altar to the unknown God revealed the ignorance of their heart. You know, it's always intrigued me on campus when I talk with students of other religions. They often want to talk with us, right? They want to talk to us, I believe, because of the deep in their hearts, they know that they could be wrong. Listen, if you were completely sold out that Jesus was the only way, or your religion was the only way, the Muslims were the only way, they would be trying to convert us. But most of the time they walk by, they want to know what we believe. I believe that's often because they want to be, they know deep down in their souls there's something wrong. We saw that this week. This altar is the ignorance of their hearts being exposed. I experienced this Thursday evening speaking with some of the uh, Mormon missionaries. They're not here. I was kind of hoping they would show up. You could see in their eyes that they, that what I was saying made sense to them. They knew they were being told to lie to people about their religion. You guys ought to ask Josh Z about how it went. It was amazing. They were totally silenced. Not because 
I wasn't asking questions because every time they said something, uh, God's word was brought to bear on what they said and they had no response. They were being confronted with their ignorance. Please pray for these guys, okay? Like I said, I was hoping they would be here. They even kind of insinuated they might show up. Very, very interesting. Paul shows respect for their diligent pursuit, but at the same time begins to introduce them to their need of the truth. And that's what we have to do. We have to do the same thing. Respect and then speak the truth. Respect and speak the truth. Notice he states the, pro- the proposition of his sermon next. It says, this, and this is the main point of the sermon. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This word ignorance is a very strategic word. He's not calling them dummies. He's not calling them stupid. He's not calling them names or engaging in name calling, as some would say. He is appealing to what they admit deep in their own hearts. Oh, this is so important. Get this. They don't know the God who they know. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. Listen. They don't know the God that they know. They don't know the God that they know. That sounds confusing, doesn't it? At first you think, Mike, you've lost your mind. You just said a contradiction in the summary of his sermon. You don't know the God that you know. I said, Paul graciously confronted these men. You don't know the God who you know. This is a very important doctrinal concept. You need to understand this. And this is exactly why they make the altar. They know there's a God. They're covering their bases. But they don't know that God. Let's talk about it. Look over at Romans real quick. Romans 1.19. It looks like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Scripture often presents things, and it looks like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Do they know God? Yes. Do they know God? No. (laughs) What? Yes, both are true. Let me explain. Paul understands this, and he speaks to him that way. In verse 19, it says of Romans chapter 1, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So, does the pagan world know God? Yeah, it's very clear from that passage that the pagan world knows God. But turn over to 3.10. 3.10. In the summary of mankind's condition outside of Christ, Paul then says these words in 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And then verse 18 summarizes, There is no fear of God before their eyes. What we see here is everyone knows there is a God, the one true God. But they don't understand Him and affirm that God in a saving faith and without God's grace. 
we are born or we are humans and we are able to understand and discern from the general revelation that there is a God. So we don't have to prove to anybody that God exists. Do you understand? If you do, you are letting their lying hearts control the conversation. Do you understand? Everybody you ever talk to will know that there is a God, the one true God, because the creation screams at them. However, they don't understand Him. They don't really know Him. They don't know Him in a saving way. Instead, they suppress that truth and they come up with a God in their own mind. And that's exactly what we see with the people in Athens. That's why they made the altar to the unknown God, covering their back. Say, no, there's a God, but we haven't really figured out who it is. Let's throw another one out here to protect ourselves. The blindness of our hearts apart from God's grace. Do you see it? It's obvious with these people. So Paul goes, introduces his sermon with a direct exposure of this condition to the unbelievers. What's so interesting, look back at Acts 17. Is these people were all about knowledge. They were all about knowing. And so he picks up on their desire for knowledge and he uses that as a contact point. Notice in verse 19 of chapter 17. And they took him, Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we may know that what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. So Paul brings out the point of contact. The point of contact is their lack of knowledge. They don't really know the God they know. Now, they didn't have the greatest motives, as we see in verse 22, but the point of contact is still there. They want to know because they don't know. We get our word agnostic from the unknown God, from that idea of unknown, or also from the word ignorance. Both of them are related. So they say, we want to know. Paul says, in effect, yep, you don't know him, so let me reveal the known but unknown God to you. That's what he's saying. In effect, Paul states his sermon with this. You must know the unknown God that you know. Yet he does it with grace and respect. Now, just a side note here. The word ignorant in our context often implies being stupid or dumb or even morally rude. You look up the word, that's what it means. I'm convinced that this is not how Paul was using the word ignorant or ignorance. This is a case where if you don't know the historical meaning of the word in context, we will think Paul is being rude when he identifies their ignorance. But Paul is just appealing to their lack of knowledge, their lack of understanding of the one true God. Do you understand? He's not being rude here. Now, he is confronting them, but he's not doing it in a rude way. They know him as Paul, or they know God, as Paul will point out, through their awareness of general revelation. But Paul will say they don't know him because of their sin and need of repentance. It's very important. As one commentator states, they know and name God without intending to do so, end quote. They made the altar for wrong motives and from a lost condition, but they reveal their long, they long to worship. They also reveal a deep 
down knowledge of God just like some of the other citizens, as verse 28 states. For just, they just have not known him as a saving God. Very, very, very important. So what do we learn from this introduction? One, we must recognize and understand our audience and speak to them as God's creation. You understand that? How does that apply to you guys? Well, you need to realize who you're talking to. You need to understand that. You need to take that to heart. When somebody is rude to you, you need to understand who they are. If you understand that they're God's image bearers, you're going to talk with respect. You're going to honor them, right? Second, we must show respect and honor to the image bearers we are communicating with, even in the way we talk to them. We don't just say, yeah, I know they're an image bearer, but I'm going to be rude to you. No, take it to heart and then talk the right way. Third, we must speak the truth with love and with grace and with boldness. In other words, don't just bail out. (laughs) When you have a problem and you see that there's a problem, don't just give up on it. Now, I admit that sometimes you might not need to confront right away. Sometimes you might need to sit back and wait for them to come and say to you, hey, I want to hear from you. That's what happened with Paul, right? But the reality is, is you need to be ready to speak the truth. In love. Fourth, we seek a point of contact, re- contact revealed in Scripture. Paul knew the Athenians, knew God, but were suppressing the truth, so they were ignorant to God. So he went to the point of contact, which was their desire to know God. All right? So next we see the body of Paul's message. Paul proclaims the glory of God and their audience's need of salvation. Let's look at it. What an amazing passage. In verse 24 it states, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from one of each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Some have accused Paul of not using scripture, instead using human reason to try to convert the Athenians. I completely disagree. No, he doesn't use that common little phrase, as it is written and as scripture states. But do you see the Bible throughout that whole section? This is truth revealed from scripture. He speaks the truth found in the scriptures with full reliance on its authority. Almost every word and every concept is found in the Bible in other places and in the Old Testament specifically. Paul gives a lesson in theology proper. He gives the Athenians a glimpse of God and his glory. And again, this is so important. Just get this idea. This is what evangelism really is. You understand, we are trying to give a glimpse of God to people. That's what we want to do. It's not just about confronting them with their sin. We're trying to show them the glory of God. And if we show them the glory of God, what's going to happen? They're going to be confronted with their sin. They'll know they need a Savior. 
if they understand the glory of God. Paul gives this lesson. Notice, I marvel at the sermon because he appears to give an exposition of the entire Bible in eight verses. This is amazing. Now, some would say, well, maybe this is a a simplified version of his sermon. But, you know, the more I read it, the more it fits so perfect together. I wonder if this is all he got out. I I wouldn't be surprised if I get to heaven and find out that this is all he said. And it wasn't this gigantic sermon. It fits so perfectly, and it's added on to the previous sections. Maybe he developed it, but I think this is probably what he said. So let's look at this exposition. Notice Paul reveals God is the creator first in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. Folks, there's no way around this, is it? Is there? God is clearly credited with making the world and all that is in it. This spoke against the Epicureans who thought the world was a result of an accident, much like the evolutionists of today. Paul also confronted the Stoic pantheists that said that matter has always existed. They believed matter was there forever and that there was no God that created it. So Paul is directly confronting them with their false gods. And he's saying, no, God created everything. And he used, obviously, what's found in Scripture to do this. One true creator. And I think, by the way, the longer we go in our culture, the more you're going to have to establish that starting point. I'm completely convinced the more we get along in our, in our world, you're going to have to start with God as creator. Because people don't think that way. Many people don't think that way. Second, he says, God is Lord of heaven and earth. These first two points will be developed in the following verses. This point points to his lordship over all, both heaven and earth. Again, his sovereign authority is obviously clearly stated. God is over all. He's not under anyone. God is above all. Again, above one's own pleasures and despite everyone's denial of him. God is Lord of heaven and earth. Very important for you to get and embrace. Next we see in light of who God is. Notice, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. These next two points characterize God as weighty and big. God transcends his creation. A temple can't contain God. God is bigger than anything his creation can make for him to hold him. This is a big view of God. To somehow say God is able to be limited to a location made by human hands is absolute lunacy. But that's what they taught in Athens. They taught that. Every religion except the one true religion that honors the Lord God makes a God that is more like a human than anything close to the real God. You understand that? That's what the human heart does. It makes gods that accept that, that will accept them. Even the Muslim I talked to this week acknowledged that God's standard for allowing people into heaven was more like a man's standard than anything close to God's real standard. That's reality. I said, look, God created everything. He's holy and just and perfect. That means no sin can enter his presence. How are you going to heaven? He said, God doesn't judge that way. 
he lets things go. If I ask him and ask him, ask him to forgive me, he'll forgive me. What does that say? That says God is not just. That's what they say. Every religion does this, folks. What they're saying is the same things as these idol worshipers in Athens. God is containable, attainable by one's own merit. This is what? Foolishness. And notice fourth, God is not made better through service of human hands. I love this little phrase. This is so important. As though he needed anything. Do you understand? God does not need anything. He does not need you. I'm sorry. You coming here to worship today, it didn't make God better. God could, that doesn't matter. He doesn't need you. God transcends. He's much bigger than us. He's bigger than the creation. We're little gnats compared to him. He created us from dust. Who are we to say that God needs us? This is exposing their hearts and showing that they are creating gods that fit their mind-made images. So Paul is making it clear. God is not anything like the idols that were on display in the Parthenon. Parthenon. This is why we must be careful to avoid making what we do what makes God accept us. Very important. This is why Roman Catholicism is no different from any other false religion, beloved. It's a fact. And as much as I hate this, the fact of the matter, you can't, can you see it? You can barely see it. This Pope standing on the UN stage with all the other false religions is perfect. It shows, it exposes exactly what the problem is. Because what happens All religions come together when it comes to the end. Why? Because it's all about human merit. Because they've made a God that, therefore, is about what you do. Beloved, that's not God. God doesn't need anything from you. Matter of fact, if he gave us what we deserve, we'd all go where? Yeah. That's why when a so-called evangelical says the Pope is a fellow brother... They are no different from the people Paul was preaching to and exposing in Acts 17. Now, if you have battled with this in your mind and you're wondering in your mind, I don't get this, I don't understand, I want to make it clear to you, okay? If you are working your way to heaven and you have bought the lie of Roman Catholicism, you are going to hell. There is no question about that. Nobody in this church, please, if you are ever called and asked, can you go to heaven by believing what a Roman Catholic believes, you need to say, no. You need to evaluate what you're doing. You're making a false god. (laughs) Nice, huh? Okay, so I read an article this week that was very concerning to me. It was a survey of a thousand Protestant evangelical pastors. Look at these charts explaining the survey by Lifeway. Lifeway did the survey, and they're Southern Baptist Printing Corporation. So we'd hope that they got real Protestants. I think they did. 
I'm guessing, Protestant, not just Protestant people. These are pastors. Look at this. What impact has Pope Francis had on your opinion of the Catholic Church? Positive impact, 37%. 43% negative impact, or no impact. Negative impact, only 14%. 7% is not sure. Okay, so that's not real bad, is it? Yes! He is being more deceptive than the others. He's much more deceptive. This, it gets worse. Views on Pope, this is, I, when I read this, I was like, what? Pastors, can a Catholic be a born-again Christian? 90%, yes. Now, I have to admit, at this point, I'm grappling. Okay, are you saying that every single Roman Catholic in the whole planet is lost? In some village in a small country where they ne- all they have is their Bible and they don't even have a priest? I'm not saying that they don't read their Bible and get saved, but they wouldn't be affirming Roman Catholicism doctrine either. If they affirm Roman Catholicism doctrine, you've got to put, they're dead lost. I'm sorry. If you say that you are saved by faith plus works, you're dead. You're dead in sin because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. 90%. Do you view Pope Francis as a genuine Christian and your brother in Christ? 63% said yes of pastors. Do you understand this guy is antichrist? He's the spirit of antichrist. This is American Christianity. A thousand Protestant evangelical pastors telling 63% say that Pope is a brother in Christ. That, that's, that one alone should expose everything, doesn't it? Do you, do you value Pope Francis's opinion on theological matters? 42% yes. Oh, oh my. Do you see this kind of stuff reading this week? I was like, come quickly, please, Lord. Kill this sin. Rejection of God. I know some of y'all are in here. Man, this guy is against Roman Catholics. No, I'm grieved by them. I am overwhelmingly grieved by them. Listen to this quote from the article. More than two-thirds of Protestant pastors with a master's degree or doctoral degree, 69% view Pope Francis as a genuine Christian and brother in Christ, compared to only 42% with a bachelor's degree and no college. Don't go to seminary. (laughs) Done. No more doctor's degree. I'm out of the D-men program. I might become a demon. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that that's all seminaries and colleges and all degrees, but do you see this? This is profound, isn't it? The more study you get, the more you're going to embrace false teachings. Boy, that's scary, isn't it? 
Again, I'm not saying don't go to seminary. I'm just saying you better make sure you go to a seminary that would not answer like that. Look, beloved, if we are committed to a God that needs us or grants us forgiveness based on a prayer we pray or a religious sacrament we perform, we are lost. We're lost because this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is very clear. He's holy, he's just, he's perfect, and he demands perfect righteousness. And nothing you can't do can achieve that righteousness. You must repent and believe in that one true God. That's why he sent his son. Jesus died to pay for sin. He paid for sin and rose from the dead to give life. And we believe only in Christ. Only in Christ. No one else. Not a pope. Not anything I do. We believe in Christ and Christ alone. Right? We must stand for this truth. And we may die for this truth one day. Many, many reformers did. So I echo the Apostle Paul's words. God does not need anything. From us. We'll pick up with that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us a revelation of your glory and who you are and what you are about. Lord, we do pray that you will help us to walk with you, to serve you, to know you, to learn from you. Oh, Father, we know that none of us in the room are worthy of acceptance from you. We know, as Daniel mentioned at the very beginning of our service, we all deserve one thing, and that is hell. And, Lord, we affirm that and know that there is no merit within ourselves that gets us to you. It is only by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have a way to be in your presence. So we repent again and reaffirm in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all. God, may we honor you with all that we do and say. And may we boldly proclaim the truth with respect and grace to the image bearers that we speak to. We pray this in Jesus' name.